Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 186, A Forgotten Battle on Boston Harbor. Hi, I'm Jake. Today, I'll be talking about a battle that took place 245 years ago this week, when provincial militia fought Royal Marines in what's now East Boston. The engagement that we now call the Battle of Chelsea Creek was sandwiched between the Battle of Lexington in April and Bunker Hill in June, and it's often overshadowed by those larger battles in our memories. While the casualty counts and, frankly, the stakes were lower than at those familiar battles, this skirmish over livestock was an important testing ground for the new American army. It proved that the militias of different colonies could plan together and fight together. It confirmed the wisdom of maneuvering and firing from cover instead of facing the Redcoats head-on, and it bolstered provincial morale with a decisive victory. The ragtag American army even managed to destroy a ship of the Royal Navy in the fighting. But before we talk about the forgotten Battle of Chelsea Creek, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club pick and our upcoming historical event. My selection for the Boston Book Club this week is an article on Universal Hub titled the elevated origins of a lowly building in Chinatown. At the corner of Harrison and Beach Streets, within sight of the Chinatown Gate, there's a nondescript single-story building with storefronts for a Vietnamese sandwich shop and a bakery. As writer Adam Gaffin points out, it's normal in every way, except that it's the only single-story building in a dense, built-up neighborhood. In uncovering the reason behind the building's surprising compactness, Gaffin tells the story of three decades of transit development in Boston. He says, When the building went up, it couldn't reach higher because elevated train tracks ran right above it, carrying trains on a sharp curve from Harrison Avenue onto Beach Street as part of a waterfront loop that was, for three decades, possibly as close as we'll ever get to a north-south rail link. In order to allow for the turn at Harrison and Beach, the railway company had to use its state-granted power to condemn property at the corner. In particular, the multi-story Boston Hotel, which had stood there since at least the 1860s. The article follows the Atlantic Ave L from the planning stage in 1897, through construction, to its surge and then decline in ridership, as the Tremont Street subway tunnel carried more and more passengers. Finally, it describes how the entire line was shut down in 1938 and scrapped in 1942 to support the war effort. It's an excellent piece about a neighborhood's changing needs for transit and how transit in turn changed the neighborhood. I'll include a link to the story in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a June 3rd online book talk about the power of visual images in the fight for women's suffrage. We've released two episodes recently about the fight for suffrage, covering the last women who were jailed for suffrage in episode 173, and interviewing Barbara Berenson about her book Massachusetts in the Women's Suffrage Movement in episode 168. This talk by Professor Allison Lang of Wentworth will draw on her research for the book Picturing Political Power, about how suffragists used everything from engravings to banners to photos in the struggle for the vote. Here's how the Massachusetts Historical Society describes the event. Picturing political power offers a comprehensive analysis of the connection between images, gender, and power. 
This examination of the fights that led to the ratification of the 19th Amendment explores how suffragists pioneered one of the first extensive visual campaigns in modern American history. Professor Allison Lang shows how pictures, from early engravings and photographs to colorful posters, proved central to suffragists' efforts to change expectations for women, fighting back against the accepted norms of their times. Picturing political power demonstrates the centrality of visual politics to American women's campaigns throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, revealing the power of images to change history. The talk will begin at 5.30 p.m. on Wednesday, June 3rd. It's a free event, but you will have to register to get the Zoom link. We'll have the information you need in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 186. Before I start the show, it's time for a word from the sponsor of this week's podcast. Liberty & Co. sells products inspired by the American Revolution, many of which have themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past. One of the unique products that Liberty & Co. offers is an exclusive Candles of the Revolution series, and their most recent offering is a special, limited-edition Green Dragon Tavern candle. The Green Dragon Tavern was one of the largest structures in colonial Boston, and within its sturdy brick walls, the revolutionary spirit was incubated and finally hatched in April of 1775. Starting after the Stamp Act riots a decade earlier, it was home to the St. Andrews Freemason Lodge, the Loyal Nine, the Sons of Liberty, and the Boston Committee of Correspondence. The Green Dragon was a favorite hangout of Joseph Warren, John Hancock, and all your favorite revolutionaries. It was where the Tea Party was planned, and where Paul Revere got his instructions to ride to Lexington and Concord. Experts say that the sense of smell is closely tied to memory, so imagine remembering a secret meeting of the Sons of Liberty, with this unique candle that smells like coffee, pipe tobacco, and revolution. It was poured as a small, limited-edition run in an exclusive Green Dragon Tavern mug that's perfect to reuse for either coffee or ale. If candles aren't your thing, you might also consider the 1775 Militia Collection, honoring the citizen soldiers who turned out for the battles of Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill, and even Chelsea Creek, months before the Continental Army was formed. The bundle contains a t-shirt and sticker with a design of two muskets crossed over the date 1775 above a New England pine tree. It also contains the exclusive Anatomy of a Revolution mug, with a schematic of a brown bass musket, from butt plate to bayonet lug. You can get 20% off of any order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use the discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O, and use the discount code HUBHISTORY. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Less than a month after he first marched to Lexington, Groton Minuteman Amos Farnsworth found himself squatting in a ditch in a swamp, waiting for the Royal Marines to attack him. His diary entry for May 27, 1775 said, We crossed the river, and about fifteen of us squatted down in a ditch on the marsh and stood our ground. That ditch was in today's East Boston, roughly where Constitution Beach is now. Amos and his company of Colonel Ephraim Doolittle's Minuteman Regiment were the rear guard covering the withdrawal after a provincial raid. 
A detachment of about 30 soldiers was waiting from Noddles Island, across a marsh, to Hog Island, where they'd join about two or 300 Massachusetts militia under Colonel John Nixon and 300 members of Colonel John Stark's 1st New Hampshire Regiment. Together, they planned to retreat across Belle Isle Marsh to the mainland. A large party of Royal Marines marched after the retreating Patriots and soon stumbled across Amos Farnsworth and his friends. Amos wrote, There came a company of regulars on the marsh on the other side of the river, and the schooner, and we had a hot fire until the regulars retreated. But notwithstanding the bullets flew very thick, yet there was not a man of us killed. Surely God has a favor towards us. The exchange of fire that somehow miraculously missed the Patriots killed three of the Marines and wounded another. With the British advance slowed, the Patriots withdrew to Hog Island where they faced a new challenge. An armed British schooner sailing so close to shore it was practically on land tried to cut off their retreat to the mainland, Chelsea, and safety. It was shaping up to be an interesting day. Writing in 2009 about the engagement that we now remember as the Battle of Chelsea Creek, Craig Brown of UMass Boston noted that it had several notable firsts for the revolution. Number one. The Battle of Chelsea Creek was the first planned offensive by the provincial forces in the Revolutionary War that resulted in an engagement. Number two. The Battle of Chelsea Creek was the first instance of military cooperation by parties from different colonies in defense of their constitutional rights. Number three. The Battle of Chelsea Creek was the first naval engagement of the Revolutionary War. Number four. The Battle of Chelsea Creek was the first time the Provincials captured a British ship of war during the Revolution. And number five. The Battle of Chelsea Creek saw the first use of artillery by the Provincials in the Revolutionary cause. It all started with the battles at Lexington and Concord the month before. From the moment the British column retreated back to Boston, the Patriot militias who quickly surrounded the city controlled the land. The occupying British would have no trade or commerce to supply cattle and pigs for meat, no milk, butter, or other dairy, no hay for the horses. When it started to get cold, there would be no straw for bedding and insulation, and no firewood to keep the redcoats warm. However, while the Patriots controlled the land, the power of the British Navy meant that they fully controlled the sea. Boston, as we may have mentioned before, was a city on a peninsula. Militia units from around New England streamed into Cambridge and Roxbury to keep the British regulars trapped in the peninsular town of Boston. Boston transformed itself from a tiny town on a peninsula to a sprawling city. It was a small, densely populated city on a tiny, mitten-shaped peninsula. The tiny Shawmut Peninsula that comprised Boston. Before Boston was expanded by filling the salt marshes that surrounded the Shawmut Peninsula, John Winthrop and his Puritan followers settled on the tiny peninsula they called Boston. Back when Boston was a tiny village on the Shawmut Peninsula, The only road leading off the peninsula of Boston. New England militias rushed to surround Boston and trap the British regulars within the peninsular town. The tiny Shawmut Peninsula was surrounded by the islands of Boston Harbor. Until supplies could be transported from Britain, which could easily take months, the regulars would have to rely on the forests and farms of the Boston Harbor Islands. Both sides of the conflict realized very quickly that there were valuable supplies available on the islands especially the large islands near the mainland, like Long, Grape, Thompson, or Pettock's Island. 
Noddles Island and Hog Island would soon become a focus for both armies. Both are gone today. Noddles and Hog, along with Bird, Apple, and Governor's Islands, were later connected to the mainland by landfill, forming East Boston and Logan Airport. Hog Island was the area that's now Suffolk Downs and Orient Heights, and Noddles Island was a larger landmass encompassing today's Jeffreys Point, Maverick Square, and Eagle Hill. Foraging raids began almost immediately. On May 10th, three weeks after the war began, Elijah Shaw testified before the Committee of Safety that the troops have robbed him of 11 cows, 3 calves, a yearling heifer, 48 sheep, 61 lambs, 4 hogs, and poultry, 5 tons of hay, and almost all his furniture. By May 12th, a Patriot supporter wrote this about William Harris, the manager of a farm on Hog Island that was owned by Oliver Wendell and Jonathan Jackson. Mr. Harris is very uneasy. The people from the men of war frequently go to the island to buy fresh provision, and his own safety obliges him to sell to them. On the other hand, the Committee of Safety have threatened if he sells anything to the Army or Navy, that they will take all the cattle from the island, and our folks tell him that they shall handle him very roughly. Just days after that was written, the Massachusetts Committee of Safety, which organized the war effort during the early months before the Continental Army was created, resolved on May 14th that all the livestock be taken from Noddles Island, Hog Island, and Snake Island, and from that part of Chelsea near the seacoast, and be driven back. Back, that is, away from the coast. Colonel Stark's regiment from New Hampshire was tasked with providing security and support for this effort, but he was forced to admit that his men didn't yet have sufficient supplies to take on the mission. While the Committee of Safety debated what to do next, the British acted. Early in the morning on May 21st, Abigail Adams awoke at her home in Braintree, now Quincy, to the sound of bells, drums, and signal cannons. When I rose about six o'clock, I was told that the drums had been some time beating, and that three alarm guns were fired, that the Weymouth bell had been ringing, and Mr. Weld's was then ringing. I immediately sent off an express to know the occasion, and found the whole town in confusion. Three sloops and one cutter had come out and dropped anchor just below Great Hill. Great Hill was just a stone's throw from her parents' house in Weymouth, and rumors began flying that redcoats were burning the town of Weymouth. Her letter to John continues, describing the panic that spread across the countryside. It was difficult to tell their design. Some supposed they were coming to Germantown, others to Weymouth. People from the ironworks flocking down this way. Every woman and child above or from below my father's. My father's family flying. The doctor's in great distress, as you may well imagine. For my aunt had her bed thrown into a cart, into which she got herself, and ordered the boy to drive her off to Bridgewater, which he did. The report was to them that 300 had landed and were upon their march into town. The alarm flew like lightning, and men from all parts came flocking down till 2,000 were collected. But it seems their expedition was to Grape Island for Levitt's hay. Elijah Levitt was a Hingham loyalist who farmed on Grape Island, just off the point of land at the mouth of Back River, near today's Hingham shipyard. It's not clear whether he was planning to give the Redcoats his hay, or whether he was selling it to them. But his neighbors on the mainland weren't too pleased. 
The militia began firing at the landing party that was actually closer to 100 strong than 300 from a spit of land that's today home to Webb Memorial State Park, as described in an article in the New England Chronicle. The people of Weymouth assembled on a point of land next to Grape Island. The distance from Weymouth shore to said island was too great for small arms to do execution. Nevertheless, our people frequently fired. The fire was returned from one of the vessels with swivel guns, but the shot passed over our heads and did no mischief. Matters continued in this state for several hours, the soldiers pulling the hay down to the waterside, our people firing at the vessel, and they, now and then, discharging swivel guns. Abigail Adams adds, It was impossible to reach them for one of boats, but the sight of so many persons and the firing at them prevented their getting more than three ton of hay though they had carted much more down to the water. After a few hours of ineffective fire on both sides, the tide turned, and with it, the tide of battle, as chronicled in the New England Chronicle. The tide was now come in, and several lighters which were aground were got afloat, upon which our people who were ardent for battle got on board, hoisted sail, and bore directly down on the nearest point of the island. The soldiers and sailors immediately left the barn and made for their boats, and put off from one end of the island whilst our people landed on the other. The sloops hoisted sail with all possible expedition, whilst our people set fire to the barn and burnt 70 or 80 tons of hay, then fired several tons which had been pulled down to the waterside, and brought off the cattle. In his diary, British Lieutenant John Barker of the King's Own Regiment said what was on everyone's mind. It was surely the most ridiculous expedition that was ever planned, for there were not a tenth part boats enough, even if there had been men enough, and the sloop which carried the party mounted twelve guns, but they were taken out to make room, whereas if one or two had been left, it would have effectually kept off the rebels. British regulars and American militia did exchange fire, but with no injuries on either side, so calling what happened on Grape Island a battle would be a stretch. It was, however, a wake-up call to the Massachusetts Committee of Safety. On the 24th, they passed a resolution that essentially said that they would stop waiting for the farmers on Noddles and Hog Islands to do the right thing, and instead, they'd send militia to clear the islands. General Israel Putnam was elected to plan the raid, and he recorded over a decade after the fact that it was unanimously agreed among the general officers that it was absolutely necessary to remove the stock and effects from said island in order to prevent the enemy receiving any supplies of provisions. And accordingly, a party of troops were detached for the above purpose and put under my command. Old Putt was a veteran of the Seven Years' War and Pontiac's Rebellion, having served with Rogers Rangers in both wars. When the Revolutionary War began, he was 57 years old, but as soon as word of the Concord fight reached his Connecticut farm, he walked away from his plow and rode straight to Cambridge, leaving word for his regiment to follow as soon as they were able. Now, he would assemble a raiding party and send them on their way, but he wouldn't personally join the fray until it was clear they needed help. Unfortunately, secrecy was not exactly the rebels' forte at that point. So the day after the resolution passed, British General Howe, who commanded the British ground forces, wrote to Vice Admiral Graves, who was in charge of the fleet on Boston Harbor. He issued this warning. Sir, 
I have this moment received information that the rebels intend this night to destroy and carry off all the stock on Noddle's Island. For no reason, but because the owners having sold them for the king's use. I therefore give you this intelligence that you may please to order the guard boats to be particularly attentive, and to take such other measures as you may think necessary for this night. Admiral Graves wasn't about to take orders from an army officer, so he immediately responded, Sir, the guard boats have orders to keep the strictest lookout, and I will direct an additional one to row tonight as high up as possible between Noddles Island and the main, to alarm in case any attempt is made by the rebels to go over. But I beg leave to observe to your excellency that, in my opinion, a guard upon the island is the most probable means of preserving the hay from being destroyed. In other words, if you want to guard Noddle's Island, you'd better send some of your own troops. Lieutenant Barker reported that 50 men ordered last night did not go on account of the tide not serving. Luckily for the Americans, the British had the wrong date for the attack. The Patriots began putting their plan in motion a day later. On the evening of May 26th, Colonel John Nixon of Massachusetts marched his detachment of two or three hundred men out of the main provincial camp in Cambridge to Malden. There, they met up with Colonel John Stark and 300 members of the New Hampshire militia. Together, the 600 militia soldiers marched to Chelsea and stopped for breakfast near Chelsea Meeting House at about 7 a.m. on May 27th. After breakfast, the detachment made its final approach. Moving as quietly as 600 men can, they used farm lanes to move through the marshy pastures of Belle Isle Marsh until they reached the water. Then they took cover and waited for low tide. Finally, at about 11 a.m., the order was given, and the men waded across the shallows to Hog Island, where they began rounding up the livestock. Amos Farnsworth's journal records, Saturday, May the 27th, went on Hog Island and brought off six horses, 27 horned cattle, and 411 sheep. Farnsworth was also among a small party that was ordered to cross the shallow creek or strait between Hog and Noddles Island in the mid-afternoon. Along with some farm buildings and livestock, Noddles Island also held a warehouse owned by the Navy and guarded by a company of Royal Marines. As soon as the provincials showed themselves to begin rounding up cattle and horses, they drew the attention of the Marines. General Putnam's account reveals that the Americans expected to be discovered and had a backup plan ready. And upon our entering upon the island for the purpose aforesaid, the enemy discovering us made such a continual fire from their shipping that it was impossible to remove the grain, provisions, liquors, and other stores that were in the houses and cellars next to the enemy's ships. And it was agreed among the general officers that if the stocks and provisions could not be got off the said island without great hazard and loss of the American troops, that in that case it would be expedient to destroy or consume the farm, which was accordingly done by burning the houses and provisions. British Lieutenant Barker described how the smoke now rising on Noddle's Island quickly drew British attention and then British reinforcements. About 40 of the rebels came to Noddle's Island expecting to meet with hay to destroy. They set two houses on fire and began killing the cows and horses, which, the Admiral seeing, immediately dispatched the Marines from the men of war to drive the rebels away, and at the same time sent some boats and an armed schooner around the island to intercept them. 
The Admiral Barker referred to was Vice Admiral Samuel Graves, the commander of all British naval forces in North America. When he got word of the rebel movements on Noddle's Island, he decided to send Marines, a dozen or so longboats, and the armed schooner HMS Diana. The Diana was still a new ship, having been built the year before and just purchased by the Navy in January 1775. Graves had praised the ship as so exceedingly well-built that she is allowed to be the best vessel of the kind that has yet been in the king's service. After purchasing it for the Navy, Graves had it fitted with four six-pounder cannons in the regular gun ports, as well as a dozen or so lighter swivel guns mounted on deck. The Admiral then appointed Lieutenant Thomas Graves, previously the second-in-command on HMS Lively, to command the Diana. If that last name's familiar, It's because the lieutenant was the admiral's favorite nephew. Between 2 and 3 p.m. on May 27th, Admiral Graves ordered his ambitious nephew to pursue the provincials, who were now withdrawing from Noddle's Island, saying, Upon observing the rebels landed on Noddle's Island, I ordered the Diana to sail immediately between it and the main, and get as high up as possible to prevent their escape. I also directed a party of marines to be landed for the same purpose. There was no time to be lost, and assistance from the army could not immediately be had. To reach the main body of the provincials, who were now on Hog Island, the Diana had to sail past the ancient Winnesimit Ferry Landing. There it came under fire from a militia company tasked with watching for British raiders and infiltrators, but they did little damage to the ship as it cruised by. By about 4 p.m., the schooner had sighted the provincials and opened fire just as Amos Farnsworth and the advanced party were crossing the marsh from Noddles back to Hog Island. The shot whistled overhead without causing any damage, so Amos and half the advanced party, about 15 in all, squatted down in a ditch and waited for the Marines. The guards stationed on Noddles Island had now been reinforced by Marines from the HMS Somerset, Preston, Cerberus, and Glasgow, bringing their numbers to about 170. The idea was to send the Marines by land from Noddles to Hog Island, while the longboats of the Diana cut off the retreat across the creek to the mainland. Despite being outnumbered by over ten to one, Amos and the Minutemen waited in their ditch until the last minute, then rose and fired a single volley. Nobody actually said, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, but this was still a preview of the tactics that the Provincials would use with great effect at Bunker Hill just a few weeks later. The volley broke the British advance, leaving the Marines to gather their dead and wounded and retreat to their barges on Noddles Island. The pincer maneuver that might have cut off the Americans was defeated. When he heard about their brave stand against the Royal Marines, General Artemis Ward gave Amos Farnsworth and his unit a very tangible reward. The General much approves of the vigilance and courage of the officers and soldiers under the command of Colonel Ephraim Doolittle in the late action at Chelsea and has ordered two barrels of rum to be dealt out to them in equal portions for their service. Though the land attack by the Royal Marines had been turned back, they set up a strong point on top of Eagle Hill on Noddle Island. And HMS Diana, along with ten longboats, was still trying to cut off the provincial retreat to the mainland. The tide that day ran much higher than usual, allowing the Diana to maneuver far upstream in what's now known as Chelsea Creek. Up above the Winnesimit Ferry Landing, and well behind Hog Island. 
In the end, the favorable tide just meant that Lieutenant Graves was able to get the Diana into deeper trouble. The schooner began taking fire from the troops under Colonels Stark and Nixon from the Hog Island side, and also from the militia acting as coastal guards from Chelsea on the mainland side. Meanwhile, General Putnam was racing reinforcements in from Cambridge. Though he had been placed in overall command of the raid on Noddles Island, he had not personally directed the attack. Now, having heard the cannonade and gotten a request for help by Express Rider, he moved a large column of troops toward Chelsea at the double-quick march, basically a jog. As the sun set at about 8 p.m. on the 27th, the wind dropped off, leaving the Diana unable to maneuver. The strong tidal flow in Chelsea Creek threatened to beach the schooner on the Chelsea side, directly in the line of fire of the nearby militia. As the ship drifted, it was still taking fire from both sides. Desperate now, Lieutenant Graves ordered the sailors rowing the longboats to try to tow Diana out of danger. This effort drew withering fire from the provincials, and the sailors in the boats began taking casualties. Rowing only managed to move the schooner very slowly down the creek, and the provincials continued to fire at them as they tracked the ship from shore. By this time, General Putnam's reinforcements had arrived at the Winnesemet Ferry, near the mouth of the creek. The Diana would have no choice but to pass them in order to reach open water. Putnam deployed his men behind stone walls and inside buildings, where they could fire from cover and remain relatively safe from the schooner's swivel guns. The reinforcements included members of a Massachusetts field artillery unit under a Captain Foster and their two small three-pounder field cannons. As the Diana slowly came into view, pulled by the longboats, every gun opened up on them. Two sailors in the longboats were killed by the heavy fire, and several more were wounded. With the cannons trained on them, these small, open boats had no choice but to drop the tow lines and row for open water, out of range of the provincials. Drifting helplessly again, the tide deposited the Diana on the ferryways, mere feet away from Putnam's entrenched forces, just after 10 p.m. Seeing the enemy's helpless state, a contemporary account says that the general offered to accept their surrender. General Putnam went down and hailed the schooner, and told the people that if they would submit, they should have good quarter, which the schooner returned with two cannon shot. This was immediately answered with two cannon from the provincials. Upon this, a very heavy fire ensued from both sides which lasted until 11 o'clock at night. Lieutenant Graves was in no mood to strike his colors, and his men continued to fight bravely, but as the tide went out from under the ship, it became a lost cause. One of Graves' officers would later testify, Then we carried out a small anchor, the rebels keeping a constant fire with a cannon and small arms. We brought the hawser to the windlass and heaved with as many hands as the windlass would hold, and finding she did not move, the lieutenant gave orders for her being shored immediately, which was done. By throwing out an anchor and attaching it to a windlass, the crew is attempting a technique called kedging, where a sailing ship that finds itself becalmed can essentially use the anchor winch to tow the vessel forward in shallow water. When that failed, Graves ordered the ship to be shored, or braced up, so when the tide receded from beneath it, it would remain upright. This measure was only briefly successful, as the testimony continues. We kept firing till the shores giving way she fell upon her beam ends, 
when we could no longer fire or stand upon the deck. When the bracing failed, the ship rolled over on its side. Its cannons were now pointed uselessly at the ground and at the sky. And at about 11 p.m., 12 hours after the battle commenced, it was time to go. Graves hailed HMS Britannia, a sloop that had been lingering nearby supporting the attack from the mouth of the creek. The crew of the Diana carried their wounded to the Britannia's boats, and they all got on board the smaller ship. All accounts from the British side say that Lieutenant Graves planned to defend the ship through the night and then float her off when the tide came in the next day. Sometime after midnight, Graves and the others on the Britannia smelled smoke. After plundering the Diana of everything useful, including our cannons and swivel guns, rigging and sails, ammunition, money, and the sailors' personal effects like clothing, a dozen provincials used the cover of darkness to pile a large quantity of hay and straw under the bow of the schooner and set it on fire. Graves jumped into one of the longboats and ordered a small party to row him ashore to try to put out the flames, but heavy enemy fire kept him from coming near the Diana. At about 3 a.m. on May 28th, the remainder of the schooner's powder magazine blew up. The provincials had done the impossible. Lightly armed militia, firing and maneuvering from the shore, had destroyed one of His Majesty's warships, albeit a small one. With the destruction of the Diana, the rebels were left in control of the field. They had not suffered any deaths, and there were only a handful of wounded. Amos Farnsworth described a man in his company who'd been shot through the mouth, with the ball going in one cheek and out the other. A modern account published in the MIT Press Journal describes the difficulty in estimating British casualties. Losses for the entire action were extremely light. Three provincials wounded, two British dead, and several wounded. Although the American statistics are reliable, some tantalizing evidence suggests that the British underreported their casualties. A main ship, en route from Falmouth to New York with a load of spars, was detained at Noddles Island during the 27th and 28th of May conflict. After the fighting stopped, the vessel's captain related, The Britannia came in and tied up to the wharf. He was shocked to see the blood running out of the scuppers and a number of dead and wounded lying on the deck. A denizen of Boston recorded that 10 regulars were buried there last Sunday evening, May 28th, who were killed in the engagement. But more had succumbed. Tis said they had about 30 killed in the hole and a greater number wounded. The provincials returned to Noddle Island to finish the job on May 29th, May 30th, June 3rd, and June 10th. When the raid on May 29th began, the Royal Marines still held the top of Eagle Hill, but they were quietly withdrawn as the raid commenced. During the subsequent raids, British ships lobbed a few shells at the provincials, but made no other attempt to oppose them. Noddle Island would remain a sort of no-man's land for the remainder of the siege, with neither side establishing a foothold. There would be raids on the harbor islands throughout the siege, concluding with the retreating British blowing up Boston Light on Little Brewster Island as the fleet abandoned Boston Harbor in July of 1776, over a year after the battle at Chelsea Creek and almost four months after the Redcoats evacuated Boston. To learn more about the clash that's remembered as the Battle of Chelsea Creek, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 186. We'll have links to a National Park Service document about underwater archaeology at the battle site that includes a great summary of the action. 
as well as another version of the same article that appeared in the MIT Press Journal. We'll also include Volume 1 of the Naval Documents of the American Revolution, which is a treasure trove of primary sources, as well as Abigail Adams' account of the Grape Island fight and the documentary history of Chelsea, which includes Amos Farnsworth's account of the battle. Plus, we'll have a 1775 view of Noddle and Hog Islands from the peak of British-occupied Beacon Hill, and an interactive map showing how nearly every trace of the battlefield has been consumed by almost 250 years of development. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event, and Universal Hub's The Elevated Origins of a Lowly Building in Chinatown, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before I let you go, I'd like to share some listener feedback we've gotten recently. First up, a new Patreon sponsor who asked to remain anonymous said, I recently became a patron of yours to support your podcast, which I listen to regularly. Listening to your informative and well-researched podcast is the only benefit I'm interested in. Thanks for supporting the show, and thanks for the kind words. We try very hard to be thorough researchers. We also got a very nice email from longtime listener Aline Kay, who had just heard the rerun of our interview with Fairbanks House curator Dan Neff. She said, Jake, I was listening to your podcast on the Fairbanks House today and enjoyed your interview with Daniel Neff. As he described the sheer quantity of hex marks and other anti-witchcraft devices in the house, I began to think, this place is haunted, and those people were desperate. So I wasn't surprised when Nikki said that she had a reaction in the West Wing that made her want to leave. Nor was I surprised to hear Mr. Neff tell story after story of his experiences and those of visitors to the house. I grew up in a haunted house, so I know how it feels. It's not just what you see or hear. It's the feeling of a place. The Fairbanks house obviously has a pretty strong feel to it. When the world opens up again, I plan to visit the Fairbanks house and see what happens. I don't usually go ghost hunting. I had enough of that as a kid. But I'm curious. Thanks for a very entertaining podcast. Cheers, Aline. Now, I'm much more skeptical than either Aline or Dan. But if any place is haunted it would be the Fairbanks house. We should all go visit when things open up. Jonathan R. commented on a recent episode on Twitter. Really appreciated this episode on William Monroe Trotter. Thank you. Short and to the point. Thanks, Jonathan. Also on Twitter, a listener named Josh F. tagged us into an ongoing conversation where several of our fellow nerds were trying to figure out how much the 1918 influenza epidemic affected transit ridership in Boston. He said, Hub History may have some advice for you on this. They recently did a show on the 1918 pandemic and its effects in Boston, so they might even have the source material at their fingertips. I'd check the show notes from that show as a start, which dropped on March 15th. Strong recommends subscribing to their pod. It's excellent. Thanks for the strong recommend, and I hope the data I found from the Boston Elevated Railway was helpful. And finally, Megan L. tagged us in a Facebook post that turned out to be some of the most wonderful feedback we've ever gotten. Her post said, Earlier this afternoon, I presented the project I completed for my master's at the History Department's Spring Colloquium. The project consists of several pieces, all relating to LGBTQ history in Boston, and how park rangers here can share these amazing stories with everyone. 
I figured out what activists were doing in Faneuil Hall and learned everything I possibly could about a fascinating fellow named Prescott Townsend, even talking to a couple of his friends when we were still able to do things like travel and meet up with people. There's so much more for us to learn and do, and I'm excited to see where this goes next. Here's a screenshot from my acknowledgments page thanking all the people who helped me along the way. If you're reading this post, you helped too by being here for me. I love you all. Thank you. In the acknowledgments, she said, To Jake and Nikki at Hub History, for the podcast episode that marks where this project began. When we asked in the comments, she shared that she was referring to our profile of Prescott Townsend in episode 109, which is one of my favorites. I wish I'd known Mr. Townsend. Megan, thank you very much for sharing your success with us, and best of luck. We love getting listener feedback, whether we inspired the course of your master's program or simply helped you choose a local historic site to visit when the world opens up. If you'd like to share some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line. We'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Listeners.